Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. A-U-N, American Underground Network. primary reason why the individual citizens of a country create a political structure is a subconscious wish or desire to perpetuate their own dependency relationship of childhood. Simply put, they want a human god to eliminate all risk from their life, pat them on the head, kiss their bruises, put a chicken on every dinner table, clothe their bodies, tuck them into bed at night, and tell them that everything will be all right when they wake up in the morning. This public demand is incredible, so the human god, the politician, meets incredibility with incredibility by promising the world and delivering nothing. So who is the bigger liar? The public or the godfather? All revolutions have been led by young people. If you just think of the TV images of whether it's Tiananmen Square or whether it's the uh, revolts in Central America or Europe, it's the young people, it's the college people who are more principled and not locked in and they're not embedded with the government. They are the ones who are concerned about their future because the future is theirs. My research has shown at this point that the future laid out for us may be just about impossible to change. I do not agree with the means by which the powerful few have chosen for us to reach the end. I do not agree that the end is where we should end at all. But unless we can wake the people from their sleep, nothing short of civil war will stop the planned outcome. It's the National Collective Consciousness Show with Dee Dee Farrell in Portland, Oregon, Jim Connett Jr. in Cincinnati, Ohio, Steve Harris in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, live from Evanston, Illinois, your host, Fred Smart. Hey, thanks, Steve. Thanks, everyone. I'm on a bus, uh, 574, heading south to Lakewood, Washington, from Seattle, Tacoma International Airport, and I just wanted to be on this show because it's very historic for all of what we're doing. Uh, the public face of We the People Foundation in the form of an expertly done professional video just was released a day or so ago. It looks great. It has, uh, uh, in 13 minutes, a complete update on everything that's happening with the court cases involving Bob Schultz and We the People Foundation. And I wanted to be on the call even though I have to be quiet since I'm on a bus. But I have Dee Dee and Steve and Joey Peluso to help moderate uh, the return of Bob Schultz to the show. Thank you, Bob, for coming on tonight on such short notice. Uh, the video looks great. I was just, uh, as I told you in, in, in the call that I made to you this morning, I was really surprised when I looked down and saw it was only 13 minutes. <laughs> because anything that involves 
the history and the story and all the details of We The People Foundation, all we've been through, once you open the can of worms, it goes for a long time. And uh, I think this 13-minute bite, especially in the current environment with the election and everything else and, and all that's going on, I think it's going to educate a lot of people at, at, at a really important time in our history. So, Bob, thanks for coming on. I'm going to hand it off to Joey right now because he helped you in this process. And if you could just tell that story of the Jekyll Island uh, uh, meeting that took place with those FBI agents years ago, uh, this is really important stuff, and I never heard that. If you could just lead in with that story, that'd be great. Thanks, Bob. Okay, well, we'll start with that then. Um, well, l l let me say, we, there is a case that uh, has finally reached um, the United States Supreme Court. They've docketed it. Um, it's case number 20-1626. 20-1626. And uh, it's the culmination of 18 years of litigation, which I'll uh, discuss in more detail in a minute. Uh, but what I was doing once uh, it got docketed, um, and the, no, the case number was assigned, I thought I would reach out and notify. That turned out to be an enormous undertaking. I have to tell you, I have. I, I wanted to inform all those people who have been involved in one way or another. Uh, with the We the People organization in first the petitioning process, trying to get government to respond to First Amendment petitions for redress of its, the government's violations of various constitutional prohibitions. And, um, and, and their involvement you know, goes back uh, to the late 90s. Um, and I've had a number of speaking tours, one, Judy and I, uh, on one tour we lectured uh, in 88 cities in all 50 states, and we went around it two or three times. So I have all of these email lists, uh, hundreds of them. Um, some are short, uh, a few people attending a meeting, and uh, others, uh, over a thousand uh, people who in one way or another, um, uh, made a donation, or when we had the Continental Congress 2009, we thought we would um, prepare a keepsake, and we so we printed these silver, pure silver coins with the CC 2009 uh, in, printed on them, and uh, many people, you know, ordered those. So that was another email list, and so I. I started this process of just a short note letting people know that we're at this, this, this underlying issue of the meaning of the last 10 words of the First Amendment, the petition clause, is finally at the U.S. Supreme Court. And, um, and, and, uh, and I gave them a link in this short message that I started sending to all these email lists, I gave them a, a link uh, that brought them right to the document itself that is before the Supreme Court. 
And uh, so a number of people that, that, gosh, I've been so involved in litigation for 18 years, and with Michael Bodine passing in 2012, many people thought we gave up. So they were delighted. They told us how delighted they were that, that we were um, still at it, um, trying to restore this First Amendment right. And um, one of those people, uh, I'm getting to this Jekyll Island issue that Fred brought up. One of those people who responded was uh, Dr. Bob Frady. He's a psychologist um, down in Georgia. And uh, he was delighted he's <laughs> still alive and, uh, and, and, and still fighting the good fight and so forth. Um, and then he uh, followed up and, and said, Bob, it's, it's important that uh, you get this message that you're at the Supreme Court on this First Amendment petition clause issue, that you get that out uh, to these uh, conservative, liberty-oriented platforms that frankly I know very little about. I'm so busy I don't get time to see what people are saying on these different platforms and blogs and podcasts and whatnot. Uh, it's, it's a whole new world for me. Um, and so uh, he said that he has a son and a son-in-law who are patriots through and through. And he said, I'm calling from the shop. And I said, what shop? And he said, well, my son, you know, restores antique cars, and there are 12 of them in the shop. So, um, and, and he suggested, I told him that I have a, there's a team of, of uh, tech-oriented professionals that uh, are now at work to um, revitalize the foundation and it's to bring its our vision to fruition. The, the vision, of, of course, is to institutionalize citizen vigilance state by state, uh, an organization in every state that sets politics aside as far as the organization goes. They have their own personal beliefs, of course, but as far as the organization, their uh, primary and only interest is in holding government accountable uh, to the rule of law from our state and federal constitutions on down. So I told Bob Frady that you know, we have this team, and, and he said uh, we should have a conference. Get my boys and me who know a lot about these platforms and uh, your guys <laughs> and, and uh, come up with a plan. And we were going to do that. We were going to meet equidistant uh, between where Joey Peluso is and where the Bob Frady and his boys are down in Georgia, and where these tech guys are out in uh, the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, so we were on our way, and I said, no, this is, this, this is not a good use of our time. Uh, maybe we should just uh, do a, a, go ahead and do a video and, and get the whole story together and, and, and then have it, get it out onto these different platforms that I know nothing about. 
Um, and so that's uh, it, so it was a suggestion of Bob Frady, Dr. Bob Frady, the psychologist down there. Um, now, what about Bob? What's his background uh, with us? Um, we had a case, uh, those of you familiar with our history, uh, in 2004, uh, we wanted to test the attitude of the judiciary on the meaning of the last 10 words of the First Amendment. And so we brought what's called a declaratory judgment action in the D.C. Circuit, um, in the district court in the D.C. Circuit. It was assigned to Judge uh, Sullivan. And um, we asked the court in this, to declare whether government is obligated to respond to petitions for redress of grievances regarding their violations of the rule of law. And if they don't, don't we have the right of enforcement? And, and uh, uh, meaning, don't we have the right uh, to retain our money until our grievances are redressed, redressed before uh, taxes? So we went to court. We had 1,450 plaintiffs uh, from every state, representing all states, in the two organizations. And we hired Mark Lane. Uh, a First Amendment attorney, and um, the uh, Judge Sullivan, relying uh, clearly on two inapplicable cases, said no government doesn't have to respond, and if that's true, then you don't have the right to retain your money until they do. And he cited um, these two inapplicable cases, one decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1979, the Smith versus Arkansas case, Smith for short, and the other in 1984, uh, the Minnesota versus Knight case, Knight for short. So the Smith and Knight cases, and they, they were so inapplicable. I mean, he was dead wrong. Um, and uh, in those cases, the there were uh, public employees who were petitioning their public employers not as citizens, uh, but as public employees. And they wanted changes in the grievance procedures. It had nothing to do with, we, you know, we're, we're not public employees, and, and we're not grieving. <laughs> you know, we're not, we're not contesting or challenging grievance procedures. We're challenging government's violations of the rule of law, the Constitution. So anyway, we appealed that decision uh, to uh, the D.C. Uh, Court of Appeals, and at that time, Judge Kavanaugh was there, and um, and we were clearly arguing that the right to petition historically, no court has ever declared what it means, so you have to rely on the original intent. What did the words mean when they were added? And we had a thorough historical review supporting our argument. And Judge, Judge Kavanaugh uh, said in his decision that we're relying on the historical record, but he said that's controversial. Like, in other words, you know, we'll leave that for another day. And, and so he said we're, we're going to abide by these. We're going to affirm Judge Sullivan and, and uh, his reliance on the Smith and Knight cases. 
But Judge Rogers wrote a separate nine-page opinion. And as I was reading it, I thought I was reading a dissent. Uh, she, was, she started out saying that in these two Smith and Knight cases, the historical record of the right to petition is not before the court. She read the briefs. I, she said, I read the briefs. The historical record was not included. And she said, she went on to say that there's an emerging consensus, uh, uh, there's an emerging agreement among the constitutional scholars of America that Schultz and company are right in their, uh, in their interpretation petition uh, clause. But she said, but we're stuck with <laughs> these two inapplicable cases. She shouldn't have done that, but anyway, she did. Uh, so there was a getting uh, getting to Bob Frady and Jekyll Island. So um, after that decision, there was um, uh, sort of a down period. You know, oh gosh, um, they 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 just blew it. You know, the court just blew it. Um, and uh, at, at that time, I was asked to speak uh, along with Rand Paul at Vieira, uh, to speak at Faneuil Hall in Boston. Um, great place, very historic. <laughs> it looks inside and out just as it looked when John Adams and, and Marshall, you know, and others were speaking there way back in the 1700s. So, um, and I was thinking, what am I going to say? The place was packed, it was full. And I, I said this to them. I, I said, there's a lot of uh, issues uh, Government is seems to be overreaching, and and um, there's, there's real trouble in, in the land. So there's my voice is repeating. Do you all hear that? Yeah, yeah. Hang on, Bob. I think so you got to mute somebody on the line here. If you could star six your phone, anyone on the phone, please star six. It would help. Okay. okay. Go ahead. All right, so, so um, I, I said to the audience, uh, I threw out an idea. I said, there's a lot of confusion and, uh, you know, dissent in the land back in, in uh, the early 70s uh, because government had stopped responding to petitions for redress. And, um, and what the founders, they, they got together in Philadelphia in 1774 at what we know, what's now known as the Continental Congress of 1774. So I just tried this out on the audience, and I said, why don't we have a Continental Congress 2009 uh, next year? Um, and, um, and the place clapped. They stood up. They thought it was a wonderful idea you know, to get together, as they did back then, to discuss our problems with government and what to do about it. That's what they did then, and I was suggested maybe we need to do that again. So, it, so I decided, okay, uh, we're going to do this. And I thought uh, that it would be a good idea to reach out to the leaders of all of America's of, of their leading of, of the America's leading conservative, liberty-oriented organizations and invite them uh, to a conference to discuss this because you would want their support behind an idea like this. And, and uh, so I said, well, where would we meet? And I said, well, why don't we meet at Jekyll Island? So 
I called G. Edward Griffin, the, the uh, author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, and I told him, you know, that this idea was up, and he thought it was a good idea, and I said, well, why don't we reenact what, what you wrote about in your documentary, The Creature from Jekyll Island? Uh, in that documentary, he doc it's a documentary about how uh, a group of bankers who controlled a quarter of the world's wealth got on a train in New York City and overnighted to uh, Georgia, and they went to what was then a, a private uh, uh, resort. And and uh, and in a room, you know, they hatched this idea of a Federal Reserve System. Central Bank, and I said, "Why don't we um, reenactment?" And he agreed. G. Edwin agreed, and we let people know, and a bunch of people joined us. And we took the train overnighted, and now it's a state, it's a state uh, facility, uh, not privately owned anymore. And um, and all of these leaders from all of these different uh, groups. This is back in early 2009. We all we met there, and in planning in planning this, there was this fellow who spoke up, who approached me. His name was Dr. Bob Frady, and he said, "Bob, for two reasons, you ought to have a private security force here." Uh, he said, first of all, you're bringing all of these leaders of all of these uh, groups together in one room." If anybody really wanted to, uh, some nut really wanted to trouble um, pipe bombs or whatever, they could really do some damage. Um, and and uh, but the other reason he gave surprised me as much uh, or more. He said, uh, knowing that you were are going to have this meeting. Um, there, were a, there was a team of federal agents here last week bugging the place, bugging the room where you're going to meet and you, the rooms where you're going to sleep and stuff like that. So this private security force could not only protect all of you, uh, we would be in plain clothes and we would all be armed, uh, concealed uh, weapons, um, and but we could also debug uh, all the rooms that you go about doing what we know how to do. So I agreed, and 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 Bob Frady uh, arranged and had this uh, team of, of uh, private security force. Um, so anyway, uh, fast forward. Bob, yes. Bob, could could you make sure that you're speaking right into your microphone because you kind of are sounding a little bit um, faint. It's low, I am, but I am, there you I am speaking. Yeah, I am speaking right into it. Okay. That, that um, sounds right. a lot better. Go ahead. Sorry, and Bob, they did find a bunch. They did find a bunch of bugs, right, Bob? Um, I guess so. He said it was so bugs, was, and they're gonna. And it they're was bugs. Yeah. So I, okay. I did. I, I assume so. I was busy, you know, with the agenda and so forth, but I assume so. Good. Um, okay. Anyway, so fast forward now to 2021, and here I am. 
trying to notify thousands, tens, thousands of people uh, on all my different email lists, uh, many of whom have died and their and their or have changed their email, and so I get a lot of these undeliverable messages that I'm preparing a master email list. But um, but anyway, Bob Frady is one of those uh, that gets a notice that um, that uh, we've reached the Supreme Court, and uh, the case you know has a docket and, and number and so forth, and and uh, he suggested uh, that that uh, that this message get out uh, onto these um, different liberty-oriented platforms and blogs and so forth that are out there, um, and and recommended a conference. And uh, but anyway, uh, that we decided instead to do this video that was just released. Uh, all of this has happened in, in just the last couple of weeks when Bob Frady first called. Um, so uh, I'm very thankful to Joey. He did a wonderful job with the technology. There's a lot to it, believe me. I see that now firsthand. I've never done something like this. And, um, and following Bob Frady's uh, suggestion, get, get the message out about this case uh, and also um, the case that's in the D.C. Circuit now having to do with the Electors Clause. Um, and so we put this video together uh, letting people know that there are these two cases, generally what they're about, and uh, how important it is for them, people, uh, to get into it and read, read the materials. See, see what these cases are about and, and to let others um, know that these cases are, are pending. So that's you know, uh, the story behind it. And for those listening and um, uh, want, uh, here's a, an abbreviated, uh, it's posted on Rumble and people can find it. It's 13, 14 minute video by going to rumble.com forward slash lowercase c forward slash lowercase c. It's in our show notes, Bob. It's in our show notes. So anyone listening, go to aunetwork.tv and then go to our show notes. It's on the website as well, right, Steve? Yeah. yeah. It should be. Yeah. It should be all there. And, uh, oh, okay, so in addition, there's rumble.com forward slash lowercase c forward slash lowercase c hyphen 921697. Uh, Joey thought it would be good to put that uh, okay. uh, um, that shortened version up. But, but as you say, you can find it on your website. So, yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, we discussed these two initiatives, um, the background. Um, where people can go to uh, get into the meat of the documents and, and see what um, cases are all about. And um, what's interesting, I'll talk, uh, well, well, I've indicated that, that the case at the United States Supreme Court, docket uh, number 20-1626, 
um, that's the culmination of 18 years, as I say, of, of litigation. There, is the, there were two forerunners, one decided by Kavanaugh, who's now on the bench at the Supreme Court. The second forerunner, which grew out of the first case, uh, was decided eventually by Sonia Sotomayor, who's now also on the bench at the Supreme Court. That's interesting. And, and then the, the case that grew out of those two, um, which uh, we pursued and, and I brought, it's uh, Schultz for the United States, uh, brought in, in 2015, filed in early 2015. So here we are, you know, six years later, and it's finally been through the district court and the uh, Court of Appeals at the Second Circuit, and now it's at the Supreme Court. Um, it's, it's a first impression case, as I say. Uh, no court has ever declared the, me the, the meaning of the rights of the people and the obligations of the government um, under, those, under the petition clause. And um, it's, I point out in the, in the brief to the Supreme Court that unless they step in um, and hear this case and reverse you know, the decisions by Kavanaugh and Sotomayor, then the law is as they say it is, and that is government does not have to respond. Well, if government doesn't have to respond to the petition clause, then we argue that the structure of the Constitution is then affected. The Constitution, what good is the Constitution if we have all of these rights, um, uh, the right against uh, an invasion of privacy, the right against uh, direct unapportioned taxes, uh, the right against unenumerated powers, government doing whatever it wants to do in spite of the enumerated powers that we've given them. Um, if they can do whatever they want to do, regardless of the prohibitions and the mandates uh, in the Constitution, uh, and we can't hold them accountable by uh, petitioning them and um, uh, intelligently, rationally, professionally, you know, here are the facts, uh, tell us we're wrong, tell us our facts are wrong, or stop doing what you're doing, but don't ignore us uh, because we have the right of enforcement. Um, that, that's, you know, as far as the reason for them hearing it, it's a first impression case, and unless they step in, that is the law. The decision by Kavanaugh and Sotomayor in those two cases, government doesn't have to respond to petitions. Um, and, and yet you look at the historical uh, origin and line of growth and the scope and the purpose of the petition clause, and, and clearly um, it's there as one of, if in my opinion, probably the most important of all the checks and balances. We have a constitutional republic built on, the founders wanted as many checks and balances as possible. 
And, and this one, in my opinion, is the most important. Um, and what's interesting, and of course we point this out to the court, um, maybe as a result of of, the, of our decision from by Kavanaugh in 2007 and Sotomayor in early 2008, um, the Supreme Court, God bless Scalia, but the Supreme Court in two, that later in 2008 went on to say in, in the case District of Columbia versus Heller, right about, it was a case about the Second Amendment, right? And um, they went on to say there that in looking at any right, we have to look at the original intent. What did the words mean when they were added? And, and then and that's clearly our argument. It, it has always been our argument for 18 years. Uh, and then in 2011, the Supreme Court went even further on that issue uh, in Burro Adurie versus Guanyari, um, they went on and on about how any matter involving, you know, the interpretation of any right rests on the original, the, the scope and purpose of the, of the right. And um, Judge Thomas wrote a concurring opinion in, in which he said that there's ample, and here's what I'm quoting, there's ample evidence that petitions were directed at the legislative and executive people. In other words, not just the court. You know, that petitioning, the right to petition, gives people the right to hold those in the legislative and executive branch accountable, that they don't uh, have to according to Thomas, uh, he was just, you know, relying on, on, on history, um, that there's ample evidence that, that uh, petitions were used to hold legislative and executive people accountable as well, uh, that, you, that you didn't have to rely on the judiciary, petitioning the judiciary for relief. So, um, I don't know, I... I um, we worked very hard. There's a lot of rules. The odds, you know, of the of the court hearing a case are very long. They get about eight or ten thousand applications a year. They hear maybe fifty to eighty um, every Monday. You can go to the homepage of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, and they will uh, and they publish uh, 120, 130 every every week of petitions that have been denied, and then maybe the, the list one that was granted. And um, so I, we worked very hard to, to make sure that we understood the process, you know, how these documents are handled at the U.S. Supreme Court. They get so many that what do they look at first? Of course, they look at the page after the, the rules are that after the cover, uh, on one page, uh, page must be titled "Questions Presented." You can put a little background, and you have to at least begin your first question that that you 
have what you're presenting to them, you have to at least begin that question on that first page. And um, you can carry it over you know, to a second page and have maybe a second or third question, but you've got to begin it, up, begin it on that one page. And it's all by itself. And then you get into uh, things like the table of contents and so forth. Um, and, and so they're going to look at that question first, what questions are being presented. And, and that has to get their attention of the people that are, you know, the staff the, that are looking at these things and deciding you know, whether it has a chance or not. And then they, then they turn their attention to the section that's, in, that's entitled Reasons for Granting the Writ. And uh, there, um, I, I, we worked hard, um, and, and clearly because it's a first impression case, deals with the First Amendment. Uh, and um, there are lower courts that have that have ruled, you know, on the this in our case have ruled on the meaning of the of the petition clause, and um, and they're saying government doesn't have to answer it. And if that's true, then we've affected the structure of the Constitution itself, as, and we make a strong point of that. So I, I I'm very confident. Um, and people can can follow the pro they can read the petition, um, and we encourage everyone to read it. It's it's all part of civic education. Um, read it and and follow the case. Uh, very easily to, uh, very easy to do on, on by going to the homepage. So we discussed that and and uh, the history behind the case. Um, that we petitioned between 1999 and 2002. Um, we petitioned the government over its uh, violation of the Constitution's prohibitions against undeclared wars, the Iraq Resolution. You know, it's interesting. I saw yesterday that Chuck Schumer is is advancing in a, a bill uh, to to repeal the public law that they passed after 9-11, we went into Iraq on clearly uh, false pretenses. And, and uh, at that time, we were petitioning over the Iraq resolution. Uh, they, the Constitution makes it very clear that uh, the armed forces of the United States uh, are not to be applied in hostilities overseas without a declaration of war. What we should have done back then uh, was had a hearing in the House and the Senate on, on these claims that Saddam Hussein um, uh, had weapons of mass destruction, which he didn't have. Uh, that turned out to be false. And that he had strong ties to Al-Qaeda, which he did not have. That turned out to be false. And look at the mess. Look at the lives lost and the, and the fortune spent uh, and, and giving rise to ISIS and all of that, because we did not, uh, we violated the Constitution's prohibition against undeclared wars. And so we had petitioned um, five months before we went into Iraq uh, on the news that there, you know, this Iraq resolution, this public law was on its way to being passed. And uh, we also petitioned back then uh, against um, uh, well, 
in support of the Constitution's prohibition against invasions of privacy, the USA Patriot Act, when I read that, when it, they took it off the shelf after 9-11, so it was actually on the shelf uh, waiting for something like this to happen, I guess. But when I read that and, and saw that they could come into my house and copy my hard drive and leave without ever telling me they were there, so the We the People Foundation, the board decided we should petition for redress of, of the violations of, of the privacy clause in the Constitution occasioned by uh, the USA Patriot Act. And of course, um, we were very strong petitioning, looking for answers to some very serious questions, factual evidence, uh, supported the idea that, that there is no law that requires us to pay a tax, a, a direct unapportioned tax on our labor, the so-called income tax. So we were petitioning over that and getting no answers. And we also petitioned uh, because there was no, over the Federal Reserve Act passed many years earlier, uh, but there's no authority in the Constitution for a central bank. And um, so, we, uh, so the background of, of this case, of course, is that that um, none of those petitions, and, and we had very imaginative, persistent uh, ways of trying to get them to answer a whole series of full-page ads and USA centerfold ads and USA Today and conferences and oh, all sorts of things, but no, no response. Um, then we realized that we had the right of enforcement, but the federal withholding of policy, it was just a policy, um, prevents the people from peacefully enforcing um, their rights. Uh, so, so we brought a, a petition for redress, violations of the petition clause itself um, and that they responded to oh immediately uh, this is sort of their Achilles heel I think um, and they summoned my books and records as you'll see in the video as you've seen they this 18 years of litigation began with a summons for my books and records and those of the organization um, by the IRS they they said we're investigating you know what you're doing. Uh, uh, they called it an abuse. They called it withholding petition an abusive tax shelter. <laughs> so that's what figured this litigation. And so I sued them, and it went to the second circuit. And they uh, at the second. This is all background. This case that's now before the Supreme Court. Um, so uh, the second circuit said no. Mr. Schultz doesn't have to respond. Nobody has to respond to an administrative directive or order. Um, if you, you know, bring him to court, we, he's entitled to a full adversarial proceeding. We know he has a lot to say, and we want to hear what he has to say. So um, the, that was in January of 2005, and the DOJ filed a motion. <laughs> I couldn't believe what I was watching, but they filed a motion, and they said to the court, whoa, this is going to make it very hard to collect taxes. We want you to change your decision, change this sentence, take that out, and so forth. And, and the, the court 
issued a decision about twice as long as the first one in June of 2005 in which they basically said maybe you didn't hear us. The answer is no. Mr. Schultz doesn't have to respond to those summonses. Well, of course that, you know, gosh, that, they, were, they were so intent on silencing us. Um, so they, next thing they did was audit the art. That they can do. They want to audit me, the People Foundation, fine. So they had an auditor up here at our accounting accountant's office in Albany for all of 2006 and um, concluded in the end uh, everything they asked for we provided and we concluded our records were detailed thorough and, and uh, complete um, and uh, you know in the meantime we have this case this declaratory judgment action uh, which is which is now before uh, Judge Kavanaugh and, and his bench and uh, what's very interesting, and I, and I decided to detail this in, in the brief to the uh, Supreme Court, what's very interesting is we had oral arguments on October 6th of 2006, and, but judge, the court didn't issue its decision for seven months, which is very unusual, very unusual. But what's... But, it's understandable when you look at what the government did during those seven months. Um, there was, uh, I have a copy of a letter from Dan Bryant to Congressman Bartlett, uh, who was intervening on our behalf, a great guy. Um, and it's dated in 2002. Uh, Bartlett had uh, sent to the DOJ uh, our 538 questions that were spread over 14 lines of inquiry um, and seeking answers uh, from the government to those questions. Um, and Dan Bryant, the number three guy at DOJ, wrote back and said, no, we're not going to answer. And he, and he went on to say in this letter that we have a copy of, he said, we've been trying for four years to get the Congress to declare uh, these arguments frivolous, unsuccessfully. We've been trying for four years. So that was 2002. So now we're arguing in the D.C. court, and we have all arguments on October 6th, but the decision doesn't come down for seven months. What? happened during those seven months. Why, in other words, did the court wait? I think they just waited until this happened. What's the this? Um, our Constitution says clearly that Congress makes the laws. Only Congress. Well, in 2006, there was a law that was sailing through both houses of Congress. It was titled the uh, Tax Relief and Healthcare Reform Act of 2006. The primary purpose of this humongous bill was to extend a whole lot of tax credits that had expired a year earlier and to extend them for two years. And everybody in Congress, almost everybody, was in favor of this. But but Lois Lerner, you know, and her ilk. Um, they inserted a provision in the bill that we didn't know about for a long time, 
and um, it wasn't discussed anywhere. Uh, but this is what it said. The Treasury Secretary is authorized to prescribe a list of, quote, specified frivolous positions. And if anybody submits to the Treasury or the IRS a specified frivolous position, they can be fined $5,000. And that's as far as it went. So the Treasury uh, issued in March um, of 2007, Treasury Notice 2007-30, in which they had a list of what they called specified. They specified a list of frivolous positions. Everything we were arguing, including if this, including if anyone petitions the government for redress of grievances and the government doesn't answer, and then they withhold their money until their grievances are redressed, that's frivolous. Then they say they have the right to retain their money. That's frivolous. Uh, so the big picture here, of course, is that this was an unconstitutional transfer of the power to make law. This was Congress giving the, treasure, the executive branch the authority to make law, to define what's frivolous by law and, and define people. So we didn't know about that. But as soon as Treasury issued that Treasury notice, in 2007, Judge Kavanaugh issued his decision and, and said, he didn't even mention that, of course, uh, but it sort of gave them the confidence that, uh, you know, it, that, that uh, to say in their decision um, that government doesn't have to respond and, and uh, you don't have the right to retain your money till they do. Um, so, that's all laid out in in uh, in, in our document uh, in our petition to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, and it goes on, of course, uh, through the case. Well, the, as soon as that, as soon as Judge Kavanaugh and that court issued that decision, that case was titled "We the People versus United States." That's the the you know the short title. We had 1,450 individual plaintiffs and so forth, but that's the title, We the People versus the United States. As soon as that decision is issued, then there's a case filed against it's, uh, United States versus We the People, and um, they, they refer to the, to the uh, withholding petition as an abusive tax shelter, and in their decision, they, mention, they say it's, it's false commercial speech, and they mentioned speech 24 times without ever mentioning the underlying issue, our argument, which is the petition clause. They never mentioned it. Um, and so we're saying to the court, to the Supreme Court, of course, unless you step in, that's the law, you know, from those two uh, circuits, the D.C. Circuit and, and the Second Circuit. Um, anyway, we, we uh, discussed this in the video. And then the other case, we discussed in the video, which which uh, wasn't very well known, um, is the uh, case dealing with the electors clause. Um, very briefly, uh, well, it's a very interesting case. I'll, I'll try to hit the highlights. 
Um, so uh, in, in December of uh, 2020, um, I was watching TV and I saw the Attorney General Paxton of Texas describing a lawsuit that Texas had just filed against four other states, charging those states with violating the Elector's Clause, um, which is in the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution makes it very clear the federal government has nothing to do with elections. It's all up to the states. And they go further. And they say it's the state legislatures that will decide every aspect of elections. Um, everything that's related to the elections must be decided and be in accordance with, with the law uh, set down by the state legislatures. In other words, those in the executive branch, whether it be the governor or the secretary of state or the judicial branch, whether it be some district court, uh, court of appeals, uh, they cannot um, uh, change, make a change in any uh, procedure involving elections. And, and um, so Paxton's describing uh, changes that were made by other than the legislature in these four states. And so they brought the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, which has jurisdiction when one state sues another state. And, and so I heard him describe that, and I said, that's a winner. I said to myself, and I think I even called one or two people, and I said, this is a winner. But the very next day or two, the, the Supreme Court dismissed it for lack of standing, a judicial doctrine. It's not law. It's a judicial doctrine. And, and they just didn't want to hear the case. Um, so I went to work on preparing, doing some research. And God bless Ballotpedia. I came across Ballotpedia. They did an outstanding professional, professional job of, of identifying everything that happened in the all the states from March of 2020 forward. And, um, and it was all backed up. It was, it was very factual. And uh, there were like 269 examples of changes that were made. And I set aside those that were made by the state legislatures because that's constitutional. But I listed all of those changes that were made by other than the state legislature. And it turned out there were 31 changes made in 31 states. Some states, you know, there were two or three changes. Some states only one change. But there were 31 states where uh, changes were made by other than the state legislature. So for instance, you've heard about mail-in ballots. Well, uh, one or two states, legislatures got together and they authorized mail-in ballots. But other states, uh, that decision was not made by the state legislature. Doing away with signature verification, changing dates, and all of that 
uh, those types of changes that were made by other than the state legislature uh, ended up occurred in 31 states. And what's interesting is those 31 states accounted for 401 electors. So the electors in those states were unconstitutionally chosen. And, um, and no one received the majority of the electors if those 41, uh, those 31 states which accounted for 401 um, electors, um, you know, were unconstitutionally chosen. So um, I prepared a petition and signed it. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.